Welcome back to Hot Takes and Deep Dives. And we are joined once again for a Bravo roundtable of two with one of my most personal trusted advisors. He is the housewife, empath, and intuitive and host of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Jamie. Hi, Jess. Say hello like a gentleman. I just did. (laughs) (laughs) Did you not hear me? You're always so soft in the beginning. You know, I like to warm up. I like I like a slow, gentle rev did up. You, did you do your vocal warm ups? I'm I'm good to go. What I would like to do, well, what Jamie and I would like to do today is a quick run through of the latest hits that are going on in Bravo, like what we're currently watching, our thoughts. Maybe Jamie will drop in if he's feeling it in the moment. But today on the docket, we are going to be talking about Summer House. Real Housewives of New Jersey, Salt Lake City, and I have a lot of thoughts around James Kennedy. So let's start with Summer House because that is both of our favorite shows on Bravo right now. Favorite show, period, on television. History of TV. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I think for me, certainly a lot of it comes back to that core inner circle and emotional heart of Kyle, Carl, Lindsay, and Danielle. I feel like they really represent the best of what reality TV has to offer in the sense that I think all four of them, I'm including Danielle as um, kind of like a supporting player in that, but I think all of them are fundamentally good people. I think they have really big hearts. I think they deeply care about one another, so the friendships are real. And yet, as we see, all four of them, they wrestle with their inner demons. They are flawed. They have their problems they need to work on. And all four of them are willing to let it all hang out in front of the reality TV camera. And I feel like it never feels orchestrated for the sake of TV. It really feels like they're just letting it all hang out. And I think, in contrast to maybe something like Vanderpump Rules, there is a kind of you might call it maturity or a certain high-functioning adult uh, orientation with them where when I watch it, these, you know, these are people who are making it work. They know how to support themselves. They're hardworking people succeeding in Manhattan. So I don't feel that same residue of maybe guilt or dirtiness that I'm participating in someone's exploitation or I'm participating in something that's ultimately not good for them. I feel like it's just that right dynamic mix of light and fun and it's they're sending it but it's also raw and real and you can be emotionally invested in their stories. Everything you just described is the opposite of Salt Lake City. (laughs) I mean for me like I just caught up on Salt Lake City today and I have no idea what they are talking about at any given moment. I mean, I, they're clearly fighting about the show. And we'll get into the Meredith and Lisa Barlow thing. But I feel like they are. This is Salt Lake City is a television show about being on reality TV. I don't think any of it is real. Mary has outwardly said, I don't want to be on vacation with you. Like the artifice of them even being friends is gone, particularly with Mary. And It's like, what am I even watching on Salt Lake City? And I get that it's salacious and it's got that sort of zhuzhy. There's a certain sheen to it. But at the end of the day, I literally don't care about any of those people with the exception maybe of Meredith Marks. I don't know. I feel like a certain Long Island connection with her. I mean, my take on the show this season, I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying, in particular, just this experience of not even understanding what it is they're fighting about at any given moment. For me, the way that I really experience it is there's this woman at the center of everything this season, Jen Shaw, who obviously is making headlines. And what I see and observe is I mean, one, I guess just from a purely technical standpoint, she probably can't talk much about what's going on. But even that aside, we're seeing it. Jen is setting this up in a very difficult way where she's not even trying to create some sort of middle ground story that might be believable. She's not saying, oh, it was a misunderstanding. She is literally creating a situation where she's 
to my mind, writing this ridiculous fiction that she's just innocent. She's being framed by the government. She doesn't know why. And if you come in questioning her about that, she's going to rip your head off. So what I see happening this season with the cast is these women are kind of all oriented around this central figure who's basically letting it be known. You can't question this. You can't question me. You can't ask the questions that would be normal to ask in this situation. And so it's almost like, for me, in the place where energy never dies, it just gets circumvented, there's this whirlwind of energy that wants to move the group through the group. I feel like there's this whirlwind of energy that wants to ask questions to find out more. And it's like the women aren't really allowed to let that flow. So instead it just seems like it's going into all these different directions about Meredith and did you, your father's memorial and who has who's back. And it almost just looks like we're watching them kind of self-combust in a flame of their own held, repressed energy that can't flow where it wants to flow. Yes, 100%. The energy is just being diverted through a different valve that doesn't quite make sense. And I think to your point, that's part of what makes it feel so artificial because they're not talking about the things that need and want to be talked about. But I do think that's interesting from a more meta macro place. If we look at the the setting of Salt Lake City and we look at, you know, even with these women, the backdrop of Mormonism and the idea of systems where you're not allowed to question things and you're not allowed exactly to ask questions, to dissent in any way. You're not allowed to question the hierarchy. I think it's an interesting kind of reflection of that in some way like so much is oscillating beneath the surface and then to our point they're just arguing about things that feel (laughs) so meaningless or confused and confusing what was your take on on lisa barlow absolutely raging against meredith with the hot mic and throwing it at the cameraman I mean, like, she literally says, like, Meredith can go fuck herself. I'm done. This is her best friend of 10 years, supposedly. Meredith can go fuck herself. I'm done with her. I fucking hate her. She's a whore. She's fucked half of New York. Well, I will say Meredith has retconned the story a little bit of their friendship. I I read somewhere Meredith saying we actually weren't best friends for 10 years. We essentially have been social acquaintances. We've known each other casually. And the show is really the first time that they're really spending a lot of time together. So I think that's interesting information. Um, To answer your question, honestly, I don't know. Because by that point, by the time we got to that point in that episode, everything just felt like such a clusterfuck to me. And I felt so lost that at this point, I haven't even tried to feel into what was going on to her in that moment. I mean... Maybe I can just drop in now and see if there's any crumb of something that comes through. If I just kind of let myself feel into that dinner. So you've got Meredith on one side, Mary on the other, at least. Okay, I mean, this is sort of what I'll say is a general overall vibe for Lisa at this point in the season. I I think what comes through is that, look, Lisa's a smart woman. And I think there's some degree of her seeing the writing on the wall that things are closing in on her. People are asking a lot of questions of her. People are calling her out. She doesn't have the same kind of solid footing in the group that she did a year ago. And I think what I perceive in her is a sense of panic in some way over not having control over her place in the group, over not having control in the narrative, being called out for things, perhaps being exposed for things. So I feel like part of what we're seeing at least is in the place where she can feel this growing fracture between her and Meredith in that Meredith truly doesn't have her back in the same way and almost like the walls are closing in on her. To me, it's sort of triggering that agitation that's underneath her usual control tactics and rather than just being able to own holy shit i'm not in control this takes me into a feeling of chaos this takes me into a feeling of fear or whatever it is it feels like maybe part of that is just getting again redirected and misdirected at rage towards meredith like it's your fault i'm feeling so uncomfortable and how dare you put me in this situation she went on record saying that she was quitting the show like in her like throwing the mic pack back at the producer she's like yeah I was quitting the show 
obviously they never let anybody really quit the show like in during filming but that was her intention mm. I mean obviously whatever was going on yeah it was taking her to a really deep place I mean when you say that that feels to me in line with what I was just picking up on which is yeah the wheels are off the automobile I'm not in control anymore and this terrifies me <laughs> I don't like it it's kind of like what happened with Lisa Vanderpump you know once she couldn't mm. control the narrative anymore she's out control freaks don't like not being in control and I love Lisa Barlow Yes, I know you do. You have your very own. She personally sent you a bottle of Vita tequila. That's true. Sometimes I break it out and have a <laughs> have a tequila cocktail. How is it? It's good. I actually, when she sent it to me, I I, I really researched, and it actually is top shelf tequila. And it's uh, I, I don't know about these things, so I don't remember now. But at the time when I researched it, it really fit all the criteria of like top shelf. Like they clearly, it's a real product. This is not just a housewife. Um, you know, bullshit licensing thing. They really clearly took their time to create yeah. a, a high quality product. Yeah. All right. Let's. Okay. That that's all I really want to talk about with Salt Lake City. Let's dive into Summer House. Did you? I know that you don't really keep up with Watch What Happens Live, mm-hmm. but Lindsay said this week on Watch What Happens Live that she has not been drinking she has been you know she has not been drinking for the past two months and on the show she was drinking uh like fose like literally luann's fose um (laughs) you know i love how they have each other's back in the bravo family (laughs) i mean you and i have have talked about this at length and something when when i interviewed Lindsay last spring something i said to her was like i care deeply about Carl's happiness and I care deeply about your happiness and I really feel like you the two of you should be together Mm. and I feel like you felt that as well like this feels correct and aligned Uh, yeah I agree I'm so deeply invested in their romance in a way that I'm I'm not even usually invested in romances I mean in general let alone reality tv I feel so deeply invested in this romance and I want it to work so bad and I don't know. This is the flavor of it for me. And I hope I'm not making... This might be me just projecting what I want to see and feel. But what I feel off them, I feel like they genuinely care about each other. Just as friends. Before they're even partners, right? They care about their friendship so much. And I feel like with these two, obviously, they have both made deep mistakes and blunders in the world of romance they've both been their own worst enemy they've both watched themselves on tv play these patterns out what i sense in them is that they they have such a fundamental caring for each other as human beings and as friends it's almost like this sense of we both don't want to fuck this up and in that place we are both willing to do this differently this time and to like yeah be gentler to both each other and ourselves, I just get this sense of I'm ready to make new choices. And as I say that, what also comes through is I think they genuinely trust each other in a way that they may not have trusted other people in the past because of their history. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think that's what moves me so much is just this sense of they've both really weathered so many romantic storms and we've seen them trip and fall so much so this notion that these two people who for so long have been playing games with themselves and the people in their lives for them to finally come together and to care about each other so much to try to do it differently it just feels so tender to me and that's what I get off it again maybe this is me in projection but that's what I feel and I I am I'm rooting for them so hard If you could give a message to Carl right now, what would it be? In terms of this relationship? His life, his sobriety, the changes he's made, the relationship. Well, I notice I I feel so overwhelmed when you say that. I'm like, oh, my God, this feels like such a, a responsibility to come through with the right message for Carl. Well, I will tell you, I did recently have an intuitive hit for him. Um I'll say that first. It's pretty specific. And then maybe I'll feel into if there's something more general for his life. But um, he posted on Instagram recently kind of a post that was a tribute to his brother. I think it was it was either his brother, the anniversary of his brother's passing or it was his brother's birthday, something like that. And I just really felt so strongly. And this has come through. I, I have other friends who actually very similar situations who had siblings who were addicts who then died. And I I think sometimes there are certain family members who carry 
like they carry the energetic or emotional or spiritual burden for a larger system for the family. And I just get the sense that's part of what was going on with Carl's brother. And I, I, I really have this feeling and belief slash knowing that Carl's brother's passing, that is something that energetically, spiritually paved the way for Carl's healing now. And not just Carl's healing. My sense is that it's healing the family on a deeper level. My understanding is Carl's closer to his father now. My understanding is that Carl's father and mother are doing better now. And I just have this feeling like all of this stuff, it's not like, oh, I don't, do you know his brother's name? Oh, I don't remember his brother's name. No. But it's not like, oh, if only like my brother could be alive for all these changes. Like my feeling is, no, these changes are happening because, because he passed and in doing so he, he released something for the larger family. And I just, I feel it so deeply, like his death was not in vain and What's also coming to me as I say this is that he, I don't think he could handle carrying all this. So in some ways, it's like leaving was also a gift to himself and it was a gift to the family. So I just want, yeah, part of me is like, I I was thinking about even DMing Carl. It's just like, I just wanted to say to him, like, your brother's death was not in vain. And it, it, it is what has paved the way, I think, for all this healing on a deeper level. But as far as like a more general... I mean, you know, I just dropped in for a second. The words I heard were stay the course. The words I heard were one step at a time, truly. I feel for him in this moment, like perhaps this potential, I don't want to call it danger, but this potential of as his life starts to, you know, settle down more and more and he finds more and more of his flow, that it could almost trip the wire in him of wanting to get some somewhere faster, quicker, to have more answers, to be more settled. And I feel like that's the place where he could maybe get not into like trouble, trouble, but get into trouble again. So I just sort of feel something for him around be willing to just be in this slow process, be willing to be slow with yourself, keep taking baby steps. It truly is just one one foot in front of the other. And to, and I, even in terms of relationship with Lindsay, I mean, I'm just suddenly, I think there's something empathic going on right now. Like I'm feeling what I'm interpreting as a flavor of Carl's heart. And it just feels like there's something so tender there, like something so vulnerable and tender that really needs to be tended to in a slow, gentle way. And I think when, and I think in the past he's been skipping over it. And when he skips over it, that's when trouble happens. Like there's just something really slow, tender and gentle that wants to happen there. So I think both in life and in terms of relationship, Carl, just let yourself be a beginner. Don't be in a rush to get anywhere else. Stay the course, go slow and just know, yeah, that there is this very gentle part of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was more Then there was more coming through. But I also just, you know, sometimes I feel like I just got to rein it in. Yeah, I felt like you were. I felt like you were reaching a big climax, and then you just like stopped. (laughs) Well, I just also, you know, I felt the part of him too that sometimes Carl needs to throw a temper tantrum. You know, sometimes Carl gets angry, and so I just and Lindsay's going to need to to throw a temper tantrum as well because that is part of her Leo energy. Well, and I also, as I was talking about Carl, I realized I could be saying the same thing about Lindsay in terms of her heart. Like, there's just something so vulnerable in her, and so. I think, you know, and I see this a lot with clients and even myself. There are a lot of people out there who there's a yin and a yang where it they have fire and passion and heat and strong energy. And then intertwined with that is a really deep sensitivity and tenderness. And a lot of times for these people, it really is um, it is a balancing act or a dance of kind of navigating back and forth between these moments where we let ourselves have our more fiery energy and our strength. But then, okay, on the other side of that, we need to slow down and we need to honor the part that needs to integrate and recuperate and just chill out and take it easy. So a lot of times it's not one or the other, but it's both things at once. And I just feel part of Carl's slow process is allowing these times where there's going to be flare-ups. You know, he's he's got that fighter in him. And I think if he res- tries to resist that too much, that could be difficult too. It's like, no, let yourself own the anger in a responsible way. Like, give it permission. Find out where it's coming from, what it has to say. Work with it. Don't bypass it. Um, and that's part of your slow, steady journey. In watching the premiere episode, how did you 
feel watching the Kyle Amanda breakdown or like sort of implosion of what is going on with them. The contract that they have with her parents that if he fucks up or like drinks or goes missing, which he did, then he has he owes her family money. Also, like, are you surprised that they even made it down the aisle? All of that. You know, what I'm about to say, I say as a true Kyle lover, anyone who follows my content knows no, I love he is Kyle. Your one tr- he's your one true love. We know this. You know, I have to say, watching the premiere, I actually felt really annoyed with both of them. You know, I just felt fed up with both of them. I just felt, uh, you know, let me just preface this. I really don't like diagnosing people as anything. I feel like it's up to us to claim our language and to claim who we are. So, but I'm just going to say what I'm going to say for me. Like if I ha- if I were in charge of Kyle's life, let's just say, to me, he's got an alcohol problem. And I'd, I'd, I'd be prone to at least explore the possibility that he is an alcoholic. He's a high-functioning alcoholic. He definitely has addict energy. And, you know, both of them just seem so invested in the drama of their relationship. And neither one of them seems really willing to deal with it in a constructive way. So on the one hand, you have Kyle, who the reason why I say it seems like he's an alcohol problem is he is deeply attached to getting drunk for the sake of getting drunk, like deeply attached to it. And we all see it. It's not even like he's creating once-in-a-lifetime memories. It is literally, let me get blackout drunk, end up in my living room with a pile of potato chips on my lap, and I'm going to fight for this. And if you try to take this away from me as a 40-year-old man, I am going to get pissed off. Like, he is so committed to this in a way that you don't see any of the other cast members fighting for it. okay, I'm going to step in here and say... I believe he is doing this because there's a camera on him and he knows how to produce good TV. I don't think he's doing this in February on a Thursday night. Like he I think he saves this when the cameras are rolling. He is the producer behind this thing. But I think even if that's true, it's still problematic. I mean, because Jess, I mean, he's making a choice to go on TV and engage in behavior that's like threatening to destroy his marriage. I mean, that's not sound thinking. And the other thing I'm going to say about this, because he is so high functioning, it's like when he's not drinking, then he's got this, what seems like high stress, all consuming job that he clearly has trouble walking away from. And then when I say clearly he's invested in the drama, this relationship, we heard him saying already you know, Amanda and I, we live together, we work together, you know, essentially we're doing the show together. And so it's like, when I look at all that, I'm like, well, you invited her in to this, to this job. And if you're saying that this is a problem, maybe it's time for Amanda not to be a part of Loverboy. Like Kyle, clearly there is something in Kyle that is so invested in the chaos. There's something that's so invested in the nonstop pace. He wants the drama. And I just feel like for Kyle, the real challenge for him would be what if there were space in your life? What if Amanda did have her own world? You weren't working with her. What if you had normal, uh, you know, nine to seven hours with Loverboy? But that, but that was what they had. That was their relationship. And he made her quit her job. I she know. was a graphic designer. That this was is, their relationship. And it was the same shit. This is what I'm saying. This is why I'm fed up with him. It's like you're complaining about how hard it is, but you created this and then you don't do anything to stop it. Now, Amanda, on the other hand, like by the same token, she's doing the same thing where at this point she knows who he is. So it's like when I watch her calling him 26 times, it's like he's not picking up the fucking phone, Amanda. Why are you calling him again? Why are you calling him again? And then throwing his stuff on the bathroom floor, which I'm sorry, it is immature. You are acting like a high school girl. And it's the same thing with her where I just get this feeling with Amanda. What would it mean for you to not be in this dramatic relationship? She has been chasing him from the beginning. The pattern has never changed. So in the place where we create our own realities, Amanda has some investment in this pattern of chasing the guy, chasing the guy. I mean, as I say this, what comes through to me is I think there's a very young little girl in Amanda who's waiting for the man to come through for her. I think she wants the man to change for her, to essentially be rescued by the man. And I say that too because Amanda, even though she, to me, she's clearly a powerful woman who's got a lot going on. And so it's interesting that she always seems to be emotionally positioning herself as this little girl who's 
crying and whining and breaking stuff and hanging out with Paige and complaining about Kyle. And I'm like, Amanda, you feel so much stronger and more powerful to me than this. But I think there's something in her that it's, yeah, if she, I think that if she were willing to be in a relationship where she didn't have to chase the guy, and again, there was space in the relationship and she were truly met, she would have to surrender some young part of herself that I think is holding out for the kind of absent or problematic man to change his ways for her and to basically say, you're worth it, Amanda. Like, I'm going to come through for you. That's what she's not giving Uh, up. I predict they're going to have two kids. Kyle is going to continue this behavior, obviously, because he's been doing it his entire life. And maybe they'll have another kid. He's still not going to stop. And it's going to be when this she's going to want two kids with the same father. And then she's going to leave him. And then when she leaves him, she's going to make him the bad guy and act like she's a victim. And I tried so hard, even though the writing was on the wall from the beginning. My fear for Kyle, because as you know, I love Kyle. I feel his heart. I feel his good intentions. My experience of him is that there's such a deep, unresolved rage underneath his compulsive drinking. And my concern for him is, yeah, the more he goes down this road where he's more deeply entrenched in marriage and kids and the business and he's disowning all this anger, I just think the rage is just going to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And I, it just makes me sad for him because I don't think it's going to take him anywhere good. And I, I, I just want what's best for him. And I don't want to see him go down a road that people do go down when they don't work on themselves, which is they start to, they just get worse and worse. They don't get better. So what we did with Carl, if you could give him one message, what would it be? This is the message I would give to Kyle. I I would seriously, I would invite him to seriously consider the possibility that there is an issue with his drinking and to at least explore that. And so however he wants to explore, I'm not going to say go to AA or whatever, but at the very least, did you hear in that pilot or the premiere episode, his contempt for the therapy? Oh, yeah. You know, and I was just like, oh, God, there it is. So whether it's exploring it with a therapist, whether it's exploring it with 12-step recovery, whatever it is, I just think Kyle needs to at least entertain the possibility that there's an issue here and to see where that takes him. Because the longer that he ignores that, and the one thing I will say to him, clear as day, you you have unresolved anger, which is fine. We all we all have anger. I know in this, I, I always... Feel the need to clarify. I come from the point of view that there's nothing wrong with anger. It's just energy. I know a lot of people, there's a stigma around it. So this isn't a judgment. But Kyle, you are a strong, passionate guy. There is unresolved anger in you that feels very, very young. You're not just the happy-go-lucky guy who loves summer. (laughs) This isn't just because you're stressed about work. There's anger in you that you are not fully conscious of, that you are not clear about. And it's really getting in the way of your relationship. So, yes, I would issue an invitation to consider the possibility you have an issue with alcohol and to perhaps an intention to get to know more deeply the source of your anger. I definitely think Lindsay and Carl stand a better chance at making it all the way than Kyle and Amanda. Well, what I always wonder about, and I don't know that we'll ever get an answer to this, but I'm so curious for Carl, who is in 12-step recovery and who is on a sober journey, I wonder now what is it like for him to be looking at Kyle? Especially when Kyle was the one in past seasons who was like, hey, dude, I think you got a drinking problem. Well, they, well, they, t- they talked about that on, on a recent episode. Somebody, somebody, I think it was Sierra, because uh, she had this like light flirtation with Carl and I think maybe it was Sierra somebody said like what's it like to watch all of this and he said it was when what's that dumbass's face from Southern Charm Craig Craig. when when Craig when Craig screamed at Lindsay for basically exposing the Kristen Cavalieri thing when they he was like really coming at her and they were like apparently like screaming all through the night I believe it was Sierra said like did did you hear that? And he's like, yeah, I kind of like fell asleep to it. And she was like, like, what do you like? Does that bother you now? And she and he's like, I just attribute to just drunken behavior. Like, that's what drunken behavior is. But I mean, specific. I wonder what he makes of Kyle and Kyle's relationship to drinking, because yeah. I feel like yeah. Carl. Well, we'll, we can see how bad it gets. But my sense is 
he'd probably never say anything. I think Carl feels so, um, in a way, indebted to Kyle for the love and support that Kyle showed him. And I, I just have this hunch that Carl would be very hands-off and not say anything. But I do wonder, what is he seeing and perceiving through his sober lens of Kyle's behavior? Um, can you believe they cast this Alex guy, the protein turkey can you like did they ask him a question in the interview process well i'm always a fan of the misfit like i i still miss jordan i miss jules i kind of like those strange weird outliers to the cast um but i i find myself very drawn and intrigued by alex just because he's such a uh, an, an odd fit and he's clearly such a strange young man who's sort of lost in his own little world yeah, Luke. So Luke returned this week. I'll. Okay. Ju- I mean, the listeners know this, but so like Luke returned this week. So it's like, okay, congrats, team. Like you now have two do nothings on this show, unless the two of them wind up fucking, which I'm sorry is not out of the realm of possibility, according to my intuition <laughs> on my read on Luke. Mm-hmm. This was a really bad casting choice. I mean, I I don't well I will I maybe I'll bring in some of the my my thoughts on Luke when we talk about James, but I think Luke is gay. I wouldn't peg him as gay just because I believe his attraction to women, but I wouldn't count out an attraction to men. Any girl that has shown interest to him throughout two or three seasons of Summer House plus the season of Winter House, he rejects every girl. But he was engaged to someone for several years before he came on. That was right. right And why and why did it end? Well, we we don't know know. that it's because he's gay. But I do think that it Luke is so interesting to me because I feel like the house got out of control in relationship to him last season. And I feel like because of that, everyone's forgotten about what led up to that, which is Luke does have this very... um, I mean, it's passive and it's passive aggressive, but he has this deep manipulative streak when it comes to women. And um, yeah, he's he's very controlling. So for me, when you say that stuff, I'm I'm more drawn to Luke, the manipulator. I'm more drawn to Luke, the controller. I think he's somehow done a really good job of now leaning into kind of Minnesota Luke. And everyone thinks, again, he's this harmless guy who builds igloos. But no, I haven't forgotten the games that he played with Hannah. I haven't forgotten, you know, his ridiculous attempts at being the cool, flirtatious guy. He's like, yeah, I want to go for a ride on my motorcycle. You just said it before. You said that Alex reminds you of Jordan and Luke reminds me of Jordan. Remember how manipulative Jordan was? Yeah. Make, making up all those stories and pretending to have interest in women. I'm telling you. I mean, obviously I could be wrong. I don't know. But it's just my feeling. I always said, and I forgot I said this until you brought it up. I always said Luke is just a more elevated version of Jordan. But I'm also not going to... Oh my God, you've said that? I said that, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Um, I also think my most recent understanding of Luke, which has helped me understand him so much better, is I now think of him... Luke is essentially full Michael Scott energy in a male model's body. Like if you take a male, gorgeous male model, but Mike, it's Michael Scott, that's Luke. Um, <sighs> From the I, office. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But I'm not convinced Jordan's gay either. I mean, I think Jordan is deeply conflicted around sexuality. I mean, Jordan Jordan really seemed like he was struggling in a lot of ways. I mean, just even his relationship to his body just felt very tightly wound and controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, so I, I, I think, yes, control issues, absolutely. F- sexual control issues, absolutely. You know, does that mean they're gay? I don't know, you know. I, I mean, Sierra, Sierra was brought in the house through Luke because they used they dated briefly, casually, you know, a few years ago. And she told a story last season of how he did something like he freaked her out during sex. I don't remember that. I remember her saying they did hook up. I don't remember her saying she he freaked her out. Yeah, I was this that. on the show or was it? In yes. The no, like, on the show. Freaked her out like he put on a scary mask or I don't know. It was never it was never <laughs> scary mask. It was never <laughs> it was never like really fleshed out. And coincidentally, I don't know, this has nothing to do with anything, but Alex used to work at Barry's boot camp. It all goes back to Barry's boot camp, I'm telling you. <laughs> all roads go back to Barry's boot camp. <laughs> 
he used to to work at Barry's boot camp. He was fired because he sucked because he didn't have a personality. And look at us now. Let's put the stunning personality that can't make it teaching fitness <laughs> on television. And Jordan, my favorite instructor at Barry's, he knows that I do the podcast and stuff. And he's like, he's like, you know, I can try to get you Jordan. And I was like, you know him? He goes, he's here all the time. This was like in the early pandemic days. And I was like, what's the deal with Jordan? He's like, he's confused. Like he's, you know, he basically said that he's gay. You know, he, I will say he really seemed like he was struggling in a deep way. TV gold. I mean, I loved watching him. I mean, I loved watching him. He was such a, I mean, to me, he was such an integral part of what made season three so great. The best. All right. Let's move on. So, okay. Before we get into James Kennedy, let's talk about Jersey. Um, I'm finding Jersey so far, I'm able to connect with it so much easier than Salt Lake City. Because I feel like, like, I know what they're talking about. Like, they're not. Speaking in Morse code, the way the Salt Lake, <laughs> the Salt Lake people are. Um, can we talk about the Louie video? Mm-hmm. In the, the show, they I, they clearly didn't have the rights to show the full video. So they did like a dramatization. They like butchered the video. So it looked far more scary. So uh, the, re- the original video is on YouTube. You can find it like really easily. And I know you watched the original video. And it's yeah. basically him standing on a beach with like, I don't know, 10 guys, they're all shirtless, and he's basically apologizing to a woman who he did wrong, Yeah, and he's being coached by somebody else that's part of this group. What did you make of the video, and are they blowing it out of proportion for the sake of drama? I think everyone's blowing it out of proportion. I mean, to be honest, I feel, I'm not saying Louis is not a concerning guy. You know, for whatever reason, I did feel bad for him in this instance because at the end of the day, what I saw, look, that warrior camp or whatever it's called, you know, is that something that feels productive to me? No. Am I going to it? No. Am I referring anyone else to it? No. Like I, I've been around the block when it comes to self-help in the new age community. I get the vibe of that place. You know, I don't think it's particularly constructive. That said... What I do see in that is that Louis, you know, for whatever his flaws are or were, he was seeking help of some kind and he was attempting to work on himself and he was attempting to atone for something. And I think I just felt bad for him because this guy, again, whatever his flaws are, some part of him is seeking and he's trying, and in his misguided attempts, he ended up in what to me seems probably like a place that does more harm than good. But I just felt for him in that, I just felt like there was such a feeding frenzy to immediately like leap on it. I mean, Jess, as you know, like I've done so much work on myself. I've done everything under the sun that you can think of. And I'm sure there are things that I've done in terms of emotional catharsis work or whatever if it were videoed, you know, it would look crazy to people. Maybe it was crazy. I don't know. But you know what? I've been on my journey and I've been trying to get help. And so I think I just felt bad for him in the place of this was meant to be private. Clearly, he was trying something. I think it's so easy to be just kind of cavalier and um, dismissive of something like that. So, you know, in this instance, I, I, I kind of felt bad for him. What's your take on Teresa? deciding not to get a prenup with Louis after everything that went down and the millions she owed to the government because of Joe Giudice's crimes. Um, I haven't gone deeply into this, but the first flickers that I get that I would be interested to pursue if I were to go deeper is that there's kind of a feeling in Teresa of I'm scared. I'm scared to lose him. Like I'm scared if I if I really have firm boundaries in this, it's like that part of me that's holding on tight, you know. And we already see this with her. She she wants this to work. It reminds me a little, you know. Everyone's saying it. it's like Vicky and Brooks. Like I, this has got to work. That place that's walking on eggshells a little bit. It feels like yes, yeah, something in her is pulling back from any kind of clarity that she fears could potentially, you know, push him away. Mm-hmm. cause conflict, have her lose him. And do you have any thoughts around Jennifer Aiden? Well, I, you know, I've gone on record. I've loved her since the beginning. I'm a, I'm a Jennifer Aiden apologist. 
Um, I, I mean, you want me to speak about her generally or do you have specific questions or? Well, more so like her dynamic with Margaret. Like I, I know that you've told like years ago we did a thing like and we like di- we did like quick hits on the Housewives of Jersey and you told me that you never trusted Margaret yeah. and I agreed with you and mm-hmm. I find Margaret to be such a hmm? she's so vindictive she's so vindictive she is such a fucking yenta gossip and not in a fun way all she does is talk shit in her personal life she invites fans of the show into her home i don't know i don't want to go on and on about it and i know she's the fan favorite to me she's the creepiest out of the bunch no, I've well, as you said, I've never trusted her. She feels like a snake in the grass in the sense that, you know, what I mean by that is my issue with her isn't even that she's vindictive or does all this stuff. My issue with her is that she then pretends to take the high road. And what I've always noticed about her from the beginning is she punches down. Siggy, Danielle, Jennifer, she's always punching down. And, you know, people think it's funny that she pushes Marty into the pool because it's Danielle's husband and it's a great TV moment. But I'm just sitting there like, you just pushed a guy into a pool. (laughs) Like, that's not cute or funny. I I, I mean, again, I get it in context of the show. It's kind of cute or funny. But, you know, I, I take things as they are. And I'm just like, you can't claim to have the high road and to have this moral high ground and to be better than these other people when you're pushing people into a pool yeah, digging up the dirt. She she's so vindictive. And there's just she just feels so deeply triggered by Jen in this way that um I don't know what Jen has done to her to warrant this. I mean, I I get it. Jen, don't get me wrong. Jen is never blameless. Jen is a mess. You know, Jen can flail around. Jen gets defensive and she gets reactive. She has that kind of Brandy Glanville, like, you know, you hurt me, I'm going to come at you. But even within context of that, my memory is that they've gone back and forth towards each other. So I'm still at a loss as to what Jen has done towards Margaret that warrants this level of hostility. There's just an aggression in Margaret towards Jen that I don't fully understand yet i actually don't think it's that deep i just think she loves talking shit and she's obsessed with the show i think jennifer's just a fun person to gossip about i don't think there's any there there i do i mean again it's just it's the level of vindictiveness that i feel that i'm like this Mm -hmm. isn't just casual i mean i think you know i think there are times where i've felt into it a little bit i mean i think there's definitely something about the fact that jennifer is a woman who is taken care of and I think that Margaret, you know, by her own admission, she not only was she not taking care of, she felt she had to take care of her mother. You know, she's the one taking care of others. And I think there is a deep rage there. So I think to see someone who is getting taken care of and in some way can embody that role of the spoiled princess. And Jennifer plays that part and she plays it up, you know. Um, I think that's part of probably what's triggering for Margaret. I, it, it reminds me a little of Dorinda and Tinsley. Like I feel a little bit of Margaret, that place inside where she wants to be taken care of, even though she's this, you know, kind of powerful, strong, independent woman. And there's a part of her that loves that. I sort of get curious about the part of her that maybe wants to be the spoiled little princess who gets taken care of by a man. And it's almost like on an unconscious level judges herself for even feeling that way. And it's almost like Jen brings that up in her. And it it just, yeah, so it takes her deeper into this sort of core rage. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I know you don't like the word jealousy, but like all I'm thinking is like, yeah, she's fucking jealous. No, sometimes no, sometimes it fits. I just think sometimes it's used as a lazy kind of, oh, they're just jealous. No, but sometimes we're jealous. You know, sometimes we're jealous. Absolutely. I thought Dorinda was jealous of Tinsley. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. I want to talk to you about James Kennedy. Yeah. First of all, the performance at the reunion mm. was five stars. <laughs> Give him a fucking raise. I think he is the star of this show. Yeah. What they did at the reunion was masterful. I'm talking about what he did, just his entire embodiment. And even I got to throw a few props to Raquel, who like really is just like kind of like an idiot. But... <laughs> 
the hit. <laughs> you don't like that I said that? <laughs> no, I mean, I don't. I actually don't think she's an idiot, but I think it's funny that you, oh, that's how you I see mean, it. You own it. In watching like his anger that still seeps out, even though he's sober, initially, the advisement from LVP was you need to get sober because he had to take control of his anger issues. The What? Well, no, I just want to say, because like, I, I, there's so much misperception around this, because I see this a lot, especially in the online community, where people think that getting sober, yeah, to what you're saying, the LVP version of things, getting sober means your anger or your emotional shit gets figured out. And it's like, no, getting sober means y- you're like removing the buffer that stands right. between you and the messy emotion. Like, getting sober is the first little step on a huge journey so when i'm not saying you're doing this but when i see people being like oh my god well he stopped drinking and he's still angry it's like yeah exactly. no, no no this is this is no like literally this is my point this this is my exact point so when i see the anger still seeping through listen i never had i've never had a drinking problem but when i see him he reminds me of myself of my younger self, how I w- would act out when I was in high school. I see a lot of myself in him, like the rage, the screaming, the anger, the even like uh, gestures. I literally like see myself in him. And obviously this is like, I'm not proud of this. this is not a compliment. Like I was, I was really, really angry because I was struggling with my sexuality. I knew I was gay, but Then like I had no, there was no outlet for it. There was no choice. So I was mad at the world. And I think that there is some unexplored sexuality stuff with him. And I think I've always sort of thought this in the back of my mind. And then when they announced the breakup, I mean, I went along with it. It wasn't like during watching their whole like engagement. I was like, oh, he's gay. Like I wasn't thinking that at all. Like this has been like deep, deep in the recesses of my mind. But the way they talked about their relationship, that they don't have sex, also the how kind they were to each other on the reunion during like this like really painful time, they're clearly best friends. So I don't know that there was really ever a sexual component to their relationship, maybe in the very beginning when he was wasted. I think he even said when I got sober was when the sex sort of stopped. But what I would say is, I mean, I actually see that a lot. That exists a lot in the world where people are able to sexually connect until the emotional bond deepens. And it is a challenge for a lot of people, like straight or gay, to, yeah, be sexually intimately connected with someone that they care about and love. For a lot of people, the way they protect themselves is that it's either or. We can have hot and heavy sex or we can be in love. Um I mean, my own take on James, again, I don't, I don't experience him to be gay. I feel like he's, it seems to me, it feels like his attraction to women is pretty genuine and he has chemistry with Lala and, uh, you know, he's had sex with women, you know, his whole time on the show. Well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. Do I also think that he fools around guys? Absolutely. Do I think he was fooling around with Logan? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and you know this about me. Like, I, I also don't, I just come from a place where I, I don't really care about labels and I think it's all a little too neat anyway. I think, I don't think, I know. <laughs> I know that the, for people, for a lot of people, it's just a complex, nuanced issue. So do I think that James has fluidity in his sexuality? Absolutely. What I get off of him, less from the straight gay angle, is just that, there is something very vulnerable for him around sexuality. And what I do remember, I forget who this was in relationship with. Maybe it was Lala. I remember them talking about how, you know, when they were to have sex or hook up, he wanted to be scratched. He wanted to be clawed. It was it was very aggressive. That was with um, Kristen. Okay, so it was with Kristen. And it's just interesting because when I have kind of, you know, felt around a little bit, with James in relationship to sexuality, whether it's with a man, whether it's with a woman, what I feel is a very deep fear of surrender. 
And I feel something really vulnerable there. And I feel something really sensitive there. And I think that's why, you know, it might make sense to me. Okay, like I'm hooking up with you. It's going to be like scratching and clawing. So I don't have to feel this deeper connection to my sensitivity. Oh, shit, we're in love. I care about you. Now we're not going to have sex. I mean, the last thing I'll say that I think is important to remember, you know, his mother is doing comparatively well now. She's sober. But we saw... We saw a relationship where clearly James grew up, I would say, feeling energetically invaded, violated by his mother. She was all over him. It was about her emotional needs. Um, You've heard me talk about this before. You know, this is a very real and common thing called covert or emotional incest. I absolutely think James grew up with covert and emotional incest. Everything he had. Can Can you explain covert emotional incest? Yeah, it's basically it's like when a parent makes a child kind of a surrogate partner. You know, and it's in that it is. It's more about the parent's emotional needs. It's about the child taking care of the parent emotionally. Sometimes there is a kind of almost romantic charge to it of like, oh, daddy's little girl or, you know, mommy's little man. It doesn't have to have that um, romantic component. It also can just be a message around like, you've got to take care of mom, like mom's needs come first. Um, But they call it covert or emotional incest because it's not incest in the sense that there's actual sex happening it's covert it's emotional it's the same sense of blurred boundaries inappropriate relationship and again a sense of energetic violation where the child can't say no and what they say about it is that it it can have the same impact as physical overt incest and I mean, I'm not saying I agree with this necessarily, but I did have a therapist once who said she thinks she actually considers it in some way worse than overt incest because it's it's silent and it's insidious. And she was saying, at least with overt incest, you can point to something and say this happened. Whereas a lot of times with covert incest, it's very hard for, you know, adults adults who live through that to really claim it, especially because they're already conditioned to feel guilty for speaking out against the parent. So the reason why I'm saying all this is, you know, I do have this feeling for James that, you know, this relationship with his mother that we've seen play out on TV, it just feels like that alone probably carried with it a lot of trauma. And so I'm just sort of circling back to, you know, I can imagine why if there is something tender and sensitive in him around sex and sexuality, he would be doing everything to push that away because there was just no room or space for him to say no to this woman growing up. You mentioned Lala before. And in my, I've always thought like, yeah, I think the whole thing with Lala was like, yeah, they hooked up once and it like didn't really work. And now when they're posed the question of, oh, like, would you ever get back together? Well, of course it's totally different. She has a child now. Like it it would be like, wait, it wouldn't make sense anymore. But she's always kind of laughed it off. And I always read that as she, they are best friends and she knows the truth. Again, this is just what, this is my own like read on the situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, God love all reads. For me personally, (laughs) I don't, I don't experience him that way. I actually, I remember, was it last season? I think it was last season, right? Where Lala was really going in on Raquel. And I remember there was some scene in a kitchen where Lala just went in on Raquel. And I I was going to do a video about that that I didn't end up recording. But I did drop in to Lala towards Raquel in that moment. And what I felt for her, I mean, you know, and I always take this with a grain of salt. I don't know these people. I'm going off TV shows. But what I felt for her when I dropped in was... To use the word, like a feeling of jealousy around like James comes through for you. He's a boyfriend for you. Like there was something it felt to me like there was something in her that resented the fact that Raquel was with James and got to be with James. And oh, 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 that's what it was. And also in that place where there was a part of Lala that wanted to be with James feeling the limitation of her own situation, you know, like that she's in this gilded cage relationship with Randall that she tells herself is great. Um, but that then there's James who's more, who just feels like more like her energetic match and Raquel, the Bambi eyed bitch gets to be with free spirited, free wheeling, fiery James and Lala's kind of stuck in this, uh, you know, she's kind of like a, you know, she's like a trophy mistress. Yeah, a trophy mistress. Um, you just did a great episode, a whole deep dive on Tom Sandoval, where you talked about sort of how he 
really embraces like the masculine and the feminine in his physical expression like the way he dresses he's into makeup and he proudly expresses all of that as does ariana so in a way i think that they really are well suited for each other yeah i wanted to talk about how the language around sexuality has changed where you know now we have you know like cisgender non-binary and you taught you mentioned in that episode or, or maybe you just told me private I, there was something how you never even really felt comfortable with the word gay and like it just it sort of to back up your dislike of labels and having to put everything in a box and so i'm wondering what you think of how there are more boxes than ever <laughs> It's such a tough question to answer because there's my experience of things and then there's the world's experience of things. So for me personally, I look, I want to say it doesn't feel right for me. You know what I mean? The emerging language, the emerging boxes, uh, it, it doesn't ring true for me. It's not language that I speak for myself and think, oh, this is an expression of who I am. Um you know, to your point, what I did talk about on my podcast about Tom Sandoval is that, yes, when I was younger, when I was a kid, there was a time, and I don't even know how long it lasted, but there was definitely a time where I identified very strongly with being a girl. And I wanted to wear girls' clothes and put on makeup and play with girls' toys. And it's interesting because that's something that, I don't know how to language it, I guess I grew out of it. It's not, it's not true for me anymore. But what is true for me that I've always said is that I feel I have really strong masculine energy and I have really strong feminine energy at the same time. And when I kind of think about these these different threads for myself, it did make me realize recently, like, oh, I guess technically I could say I'm non-binary, right? Like, I don't really overly identify with the traditional experience of being a man. I also don't identify with, like, calling myself a woman in any way, shape, or form. But I'll just say, for me, that word, that doesn't ring true for me. I don't like it for me. For me, Mm -hmm. for me, it feels like another label. For me, it feels like another box. For me, it's like, oh, this is how I have to describe myself. For me, my experience of what I just said is... One, I feel like sexuality, gender, to me, those feel like issues of spirituality. They feel mysterious. They feel sacred. They feel complex. They feel nuanced. To me, they defy categorization. Um, And so for me, it's like, I want to say, I'm not drawn to the word non-binary. I'm drawn to the language of, no, there's powerful currents of energy that want to move through me. Like, I have powerful masculine energy. I have powerful feminine energy. I'm all things at once and I'm nothing. And I don't, there's no word for that. So... I think on a, you're asking me personally, personally, I find the language limiting personally. I find it, it feels dead to my soul and to my spirit. I don't want to have to participate in that conversation for me. Having said that, if there are other people for whom that is the language that feels right, great, go with it. Like claim yourself. I think where I just get a little bit triggered or activated um, to use Lindsay's language is when I sometimes feel like, and this could be my projection. Maybe this isn't even true, but when I sometimes feel like there's a demand from the world that I have to participate in the conversation a certain way that I have to participate in a language that maybe that's your language and it's not mine. You know, mm-hmm. I feel similarly. Um, a final thing I want to touch on um, just with the idea of masculine and feminine energy Tony Robbins says that like when they're two people, right, whether it's man, woman, two men or two women, in order for chemistry to exist, sort of sexual chemistry to exist, there has to be polarity with the masculine and the feminine Mm -hmm. energy. Do you subscribe to that thought? I I do. I mean, I will say this. It's what's true for me. And I see it being true for a lot of other people. Uh, there's a great book about this. If anyone uh, wants to read more about it, this is this is very much the basis of the work of a man named David Data, who really pioneered the conversation around this. But there's a book called Intimate Communion by David Data, D-E-I-D-A. I read that book and it, it really blew things open for me because that really was the book because he talks about polarity in that and he talks about masculine and feminine energy. That was the book where I really started to claim for myself, oh, wait a second, there's this strong feminine energy in me and that's part of who I am and it's like and I can have both 
And then I can bring someone in who matches me there. And I will say for me as someone who I really do feel like there's both. I sometimes when I think about it, I kind of feel like I might be 51% strong female energy, 49% strong masculine energy. But it's interesting because then when I do connect with a guy, it's always someone who's similar, but also kind of inverted. I feel like with me, there's a way I present where my, you know, you might call it my softness, my sensitivity, it, it kind of leads. But if you know me underneath that, there's like a really deep strength and force of, well, like I've got a warrior in me. And then I find I click with guys who are very masculine embodied, like they look like warriors. But then as you get to know them, there's like a deep sensitivity and softness in them. So yeah, I, I really believe in that for sure. And it's exciting yeah. to me. Yeah, I've I've found this whole topic and I've gone through like YouTube, like wormholes, like watching Tony Robbins, like speak on this subject. And sometimes I think that he's a little too like black and white about it. But Probably. Yeah. But no, that thank you for that book recommendation. Like that's something that I would definitely want to read because I've been very fascinated by this idea of the masculine feminine energy polarity complex you know when trying to find your right match yeah you should read it I mean what that book did for me honest what that book really did for me and I'll tell you this is it gave me permission to to want what I truly wanted you know like I always Mm. knew what I wanted but I felt like well one I felt like I could never have it I felt like the guy I mean in terms of this conversation I felt I knew that I was attracted to like really like I said embodied strong masculine presence and energy and I thought well a guy like that's never going to want me because I'm not that like I'm too soft I'm too feminine uh, at that time I didn't think I was particularly physically attractive like I just you know look I <laughs> I've worked through my own you know uh deep layers of uh you know uh, distorted self perception and whatnot So that book, though, reading that book, what it did for me was it gave me such a deep experience of like, oh, this is what I want. And part of me believes I can have it. And I will tell you, it was after reading that book, I I went and travel. I went to um, the Sundance Film Festival and um, I then met like the first guy who was that. And we hit it off and, you know, had. Yeah, I had a nice little holiday romance. But it like it really felt like that book opened something in me that sort of paved the way for this to become a reality. So definitely, you know, I encourage people if they're interested in this, read the book. And I, I always sometimes I re- give it to clients and I always just say, like, just stay open to maybe letting it inspire you about like, what do you really want for yourself? Like, what excites you? Like, who do you what's the energy you really want to be with? And Jamie, how can if people want to work with you on something like this, maybe it's about like relationships or money or career, what is the best way? Like, how do you work with like describe how you work with clients? Like I've worked with you actually twice now. I've worked with you in intense in an intense way. And I can't recommend your the way you work like highly enough. But can you describe like how you work with people? Yeah. So, um, I mean, generally, everything starts with an initial intuitive reading. So if you wanted to come in with a question about your life and understand why are you struggling with something, so maybe you are blocked romantically and you don't know why, what I'll do in an initial reading is, you know, drop into you and kind of um, feel into what's the part of you that might be saying no to romance. What's, you know, like we're talking about all these issues with James, like maybe there's something in you that's pulling back from the tenderness and the sensitivity. So we lay that groundwork and you get seen and heard in very deep ways. And then if it feels like there is a process that's announcing itself for you, if it feels like there's a journey for you to go on, you know, related to the information that comes through, um, I do sometimes work with people on a deeper level. I actually call it the deep dive. You know, now I have a podcast called Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. But, you know, we're basically we work together for a set period of time and we deep dive that issue and you really have an opportunity to go into it on a deeper level. Um, I will say if you're interested in this work, you know, definitely go to my website, hollywoodreadings.com. I haven't been booking new sessions recently just because my schedule really got full. So I kind of, uh, you know, I just sort of put a pause on it. I am going to be opening the calendar back up in the next month, I would say. So if you're interested, I would say contact me, send me an email, let me know that you're interested. Um, and we can go from there. And I guess I would say, 
things are always changing and evolving, Jess, as you know. So if you are hearing this, and let's just say, because sometimes people really hear this stuff and, you know, people are intuitive and they know like, oh, I got to work with that guy or whatever it is. If you're drawn to the notion of a deep dive, you know, maybe send me an email about that as well, because I don't know how much longer I might be offering it. As you know, it's a very kind of individual, like we're working together one-on-one in a very deep, intense way, which is what produces the amazing results for people. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing it quite like that. So if you do hear this and you're kind of curious about it, um, you know, maybe just let me know and we can chat. And everyone, go listen to the Tom Sandoval episode um, of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein and also listen to his episode he did um, relating to Kyle with alcohol. He really goes into it. Those are two of my favorite episodes. Jamie, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. Guys, you can follow me on Instagram, JessXNYC. I have tons of videos from past interviews, um, videos with the Queers Folk Boys, um, Isaac Mizrahi, Rosie O'Donnell, Sandra Bernhardt, all of them are there. I put together little highlight reels. You can find them on YouTube. Just do a little Google search and you'll find it. And Jamie and I will see you soon. Bye.